is. Uh, glad that you're here. If you're a guest with us, my name is Pastor Dwayne, and we're glad that you're here too. Hope you're uh, experiencing God this morning. As that video ends, that sort of tells the revolution of what the gospel is, the good news story, the news of great joy, as the angels said in Bethlehem. Uh, but that's not the end of the story, is it? We know that now being where we are, but those original people who experienced it on Saturday night, that's where they were. They saw this upside-down revolution because they saw that this was a thing that could revolutionize everything, but all of a sudden their leader is dead. And they saw how upside-down everything was. And yet now, looking back, after the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, we can see that the gospel story, the gospel revolution, if you will, is an amazing thing. It's gone wider and deeper into people's lives and changed more societies and changed more cultures and more uh, cities and more countries and more places and more people. It's just gone so vast and so, and it's, and it's going right on through the last 2,000 years, right up to 2018. It's like a revolution the world has never seen before or since. But they're looking at it from this upside down nature. And frankly, for many of us today, it is still upside down. And yet it's the, it is the greatest revolution to ever come on this planet. Now, please understand me, by the way. This is in no way to take away from our celebration this week. I'm a, glad to be an American, okay? I'm glad to live in this country. I'm glad that we have freedom to worship. I'm glad our founding fathers did what they did way back in the beginning, in the day of the Declaration of Independence, all of that kind of stuff. And we should party it up. We should celebrate that. We should thank God for that. And please, as we do that, just thank God for that uh, this week as you celebrate. Shoot off all the fire your works you want, just not near my house at two in the morning. But, it, you know, we should celebrate. But but what I want us to understand is, is the revolution that we're talking about today, the revolution we see in the Gospels as we begin to read and love this book, where the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the recording, the accounting of the Gospel, which is the message and the event of what Jesus has done. Okay, those, that's the difference. As we begin to do that, I want us to see the upside-down nature of this and the truly amazing thing about this. Now, if it's so amazing and it's so, so wondrous and it's, it's so all-consuming of our planet and, our, and, the, and the world, then um, as it says at the end of that video, so what's the problem? Well, Jesus put his finger on the problem, and it's the problem I think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are trying to solve. The, the thing that keep, Jesus keeps saying again and again, and he says it different ways with different words, but one of the ways you can see it most, clear, most clearly is he uses the phrase, you need eyes to see. For those who have eyes to see, they'll understand. The problem is, is that we don't have those eyes to see from a human perspective. We need some help in that category. And that seems to be the direction that all the gospel writers are going. In fact, let me show you just right off the top. All the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say this in the beginning of their story in the beginning of their account. But Luke does it right up front in the first verse. Look what Luke says. He says, many have undertaken. In other words, there have been, there's a lot of hooey out there about what actually happened. He's not talking about Matthew and Mark. John hasn't been written yet. Just saying, there's a lot of crazy stuff. So here's the thing. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word been fulfilled, if you have a new American standard, or sorry, if you have an, a new international version, you see a footnote there, it says, truly or surely believed. 
These are the things that we surely believe. Well, what does surely believe mean? Well, if you go to a place like the New American Standard Version, it has it even more specifically, literally. It says, here is a thorough account of what we are sure and have believed in. What we believe that we have seen, in other words. So you start to get the idea that these guys were up to something else. They weren't up to just, you know, uh, winning an argument. They weren't up to sort of a dispassionate, distant uh, recording of history. This is how history works. They were up to something more personal. They were something up to something deeper. This isn't about joining uh, a group. This isn't about mental assent to say, sure, uh, yeah, sure, yeah, I'll believe it, you know, but nothing changes. This isn't about that. This isn't about, you know, even joining a church. This isn't even about joining a team. Now that I use that word, footnote, way to go, OSU Beavers. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Beaver fans, come on. You don't have that much chance. Come on. <laughs> Duck fans, you've had your day in the sun. But anyway, here we go. In case you didn't know, they won the College World Series. Okay, championship to Oregon, which is the only championship of anything this year. But anyway, uh, it's not about just joining a team and being on the bandwagon. What I think they're up to is something very similar to this statement. It has to do with what this eyes to see thing means. Here's, here's the way you could say it. In various, and they say it in various ways. What we saw actually, if what we saw actually happened to us, you can see it too, and it will happen to you. If Jesus turned our world upside down and we suddenly realized it was right side up for a change, that can happen to you. And that's exactly what I think they're trying to do. In fact, what's interesting about these gospel writers is they're really talking about this sense of, you know, we didn't come at this, you know, expecting to find what we found. It's like it dawned on us. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you're going your merry way and all of a sudden a thought pops in your mind and goes, oh, that's the way it is. It didn't dawn on you before, but then it dawns on you. The gospel dawns on you. That's what they're trying to say. And they use this unlikely, upside-down nature as a part of the proof of, of why we should believe it and why it can make a difference in your life and my life. And let, let me just touch on three things today, three things that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, generally speaking. Okay, we'll use a lot of Scripture here, too. But over, as we begin to read these books together, if you're doing Love This Book, I want us to have in mind you know, why should we even believe this stuff, and what are we looking for in here anyway, even if you've read them a hundred times, and especially if you've never read them at all. But there's three things, three un, uh, unexpected things that you find. First of all, it's the unlikely nature of these Gospels, specifically the unlikely nature that anyone would pick these four guys to write them. Secondly, it's the uncoordinated nature of them. And by that, I don't mean, you know, that they were physical klutzes or anything like that, I mean that they didn't get together, and, and it's hard to believe they actually got together and put this out because of some things we'll see today. And thirdly, the unprepared nature. They were completely surprised. It's just like everybody when they become a Christian. If you're a Christian, maybe you remember this. You just suddenly, like, I didn't expect when I came to this church. I didn't expect when I met this friend. I didn't expect when this happened. I didn't expect Jesus to show up, and he did in my life. That's how it started. That's the nature of the Gospels, and you see this all over the place, and we'll see that today. So let's start with how they used the unlikely nature of who they were to sort of the upside-down nature of this revolution of Jesus to show the point 
of what's possible in your life and my life. Let's start with the unlikely part. The first one is, the, let's just kind of run through these four gospel guys and talk about who they are. First one is Matthew. Matthew's an eyewitness. He was one of the original 12 disciples. But the problem is he was a tax collector. You saw that on the, on the screen. Now, it's hard for us to understand because today we love tax collectors. <laughs> if you are one, we do. But in those days, that was like the worst sinner. And here's why. You could never trust a tax collector because they would lie to you. They'd say, you owe this much tax. And that's just not true. You didn't owe that much tax to Rome. But they would skin off the top and keep the rest for themselves. So you wouldn't trust anything a tax collector said. If you'd ever been one in your life, it's sort of like association by, you know, whatever you did in your life in the past. You could never be trusted again. And Matthew is one of those writers. John is an eyewitness too. He was there too. But here's the problem with John. John was too young. He was, he was like a teenager when Jesus called him. He lived till you know, maybe even the 90s uh, of the first century. Some people think he wrote his book then, his gospel then. So what I'm telling you, millennials, is John is your patron saint. If you're sick of people telling you you're too young to believe, John's your guy. And look what God did through him. And thirdly, Mark. Mark was, an invest, was a, a, a friend of Peter. He was, he'd seen Jesus, he'd interacted with Jesus, but, uh, and, and almost everybody thinks that Mark was kind of spoken into and mentored by Peter, and uh, maybe, or probably was the first of the four Gospels written back in the late 40s, maybe early 50s AD, uh, just, you know, 20 years later after the resurrection. And, and the thing is, though, that, you know, when you see that he was a friend of Peter, or Peter maybe mentored him, you can kind of see why, because Peter's kind of known for being the guy that fumbles and bumbles at the wrong time, right? I mean, we see that in the Bible. It's not really true if you look at the whole picture, but he kind of gets that reputation. Guess what? John is a fumbler. I mean, Mark is a fumbler and bumbler too. Only he fumbles in the worst way at the worst time. Like if you look at the book of Acts, he, he bails on, when things get tough, he bails on Barnabas and Paul on one of their early missionary journeys. He just gets scared and he runs home. Paul had a real problem with that for a long time. You can read about it in Acts 15 and 16. But the reality is, is that, that Mark uh, was someone who you would not expect. He was unlikely to be one of these writers. For example, uh, many people think that the, in the gospel story where, where there's this guy, when the night Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, there's this guy that's running away and a soldier grabs his cloak and he just pulls out of his cloak and runs away naked. Remember that? A lot of people think that's John. I mean, uh, sorry, I keep saying John because his name's John Mark. Mark. A lot of people think that's Mark. And that's the nature. So, you know, who's going to believe a guy like that? But then there's this other guy named uh, Luke. And Luke's a pretty intelligent guy. He's, he's a doctor. He's an, a researcher. He's an investigator. He's a historian. So he investigates all this. But here's the problem for Luke. Luke is, is one who uh, was not a, a Jesus. He never met Jesus, never saw Jesus. It was all, he was going on, on other people who claimed to be eyewitnesses, their deal. In fact, he didn't even become a Christian until long after the resurrection, long after the crucifixion. And, and here's the thing. 
one of the things that people say, who say, well, you know, these, these stories are made up. They couldn't have been done. They were made up hundreds of years later. That's one of the lines that people actually say, you know, so-and-so made it up 100 years later, 200 years. You know, we got to keep this Jesus thing going. We got to keep the church going. So let's write a story about Jesus and all these miracles and make all this stuff up. And then let's just put Peter's name on it or something, you know? And, and, uh, you know, and Fred's writing this thing, and he says to uh, uh, Willie, hey, Willie, I got this gospel. Whose name should I put on it? Oh, why don't you try, you know, Matthew or, you know, who would put the name Luke on there? Because nobody heard of that guy. He wasn't even an eyewitness. It's kind of like, hey, let me put the name of the guy who's least likely to have believed on my book and see what happens. That's not even the point. He, Luke is the problem child for that theory. In fact, let me show you the rest of what he says he did in his opening statement in the book of, of Luke. Just as they were handed down uh, by those, all these, these, these stories and, uh, and, and what actually happened, as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I, since, with this in mind since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... Okay, he goes way back. He's, he's the most thorough uh, birth narrative of how Jesus was born of anybody else. He spends two chapters on it, right? I decided, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. We don't know who that is. Probably a government official, almost certainly a seeker of the truth. So that you may know this with certainty the things that you have been taught. That's why he's writing this down. You see, as you look at that and you look at the way Luke went about it, you know, he, he does what you would expect. He's not trying to prove anything. He's trying to find out what actually happened so he and his friend can be certain about it. And we don't even know about Luke, so he doesn't become one of these people you can just stick his name on the book. We don't even know about Luke until he puts himself in the story and writes in the book of Acts, and then he puts his name on his book. Okay, so, 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 the, so the reality is, is that he avoids this sort of, this uh, fallacy that maybe you've heard today. A lot of people have it. It's been used in, you know, scholarly circles and stuff too, but it's kind of trickled down into our world. And, and here's how the argument goes of why you shouldn't believe the gospel many times. Here it is. The supernatural doesn't happen. There is supernatural in the gospels. Therefore, it couldn't have happened. What do we call that? We call that circular reasoning, reasoning fallacy. You're chasing your tail. You predecide it can't happen. You see that it, they're claiming it does happen, so it can't be true. You know, any logician will tell you that circular reasoning is another way of saying you're just making that argument up because you don't want to buy it. That's really what it is. And, 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 and as you look at these guys, you, you realize that they were, they were blamed for being the beginners of a cult. People started saying in the early first century after these gospels were written, hey, these Christians, they're actually cannibals. Why did they say that? Because Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me. People started blaming them for that. I actually show, saw that show up on a blog site one time, not 10 years ago. But that's, that's what they were claiming these guys were. They, they were blamed for everything. And they were blamed for, for the problems of society, not only by the secularists, but by their own Jewish people. 
So, you know, who would actually put this forward if they didn't actually believe it happened? And here's the crazy thing. This is, I can't overemphasize the, the value of this understanding enough. These people died not for what they believed, but for what they saw. And Peter himself, uh, one of Jesus' early disciples, obviously, writes a letter toward the end of the New Testament that says, hey, would anybody die for a good person? You might. But who would make up a story about a bad person and then someone who lied to you and then die for that? Nobody would. No, we died for what we, we're dying for what we saw. And that's exactly what happened with these guys. So let's not fall into the second fallacy that a lot of people have, and that is, in, in fact, including a lot of um, people with uh, letters behind their name, like PhD and whatnot. The idea that somehow, you know, let's look at history, let's look at what these guys are saying, and let's come up with all the possible explanations. But here's the problem with that. If, if you come up with the possible, if you just ask uh, what's possible, what, what you're going to wind up doing is your imagination's going to kick in here, and the human imagination can come up with all kinds of things. I mean, just... Imagine an accident out here on, uh, at, at uh, Sunnyside and 142nd, people on four different corners. They're going to see things differently. Some people are going to make some stuff up. You know, maybe they know the driver of one car and so forth, and they say, oh, no, I saw this, I saw that. You know, that, that, you, can, you can look at the evidence historically or whatever else, and that's just bad history. No, we don't want to watch what are the possible explanations. The question we got to ask is, what's the most probable explanation, including in something we don't understand because it seems to be so unlikely, so unexpected, and flipped upside down on its head. So you come to the possibility that these stories, uh, the Gospels, were written years and years later, and the fact that they were written by unlikely people actually has a sense of kind of reality to it. It kind of has this sense of, you know what, that's the way you would expect it to happen, these normal people that do this. So you have to ask yourself, is it possible that all these were made up, all four of these were made up? I mean, it would be fine, it, it, you, you, could, you could sort of say that if there was just one of them. If there was Mark, say, or, or Luke, you could say, oh, that guy just made it up. But there's four of them with a similar, identical, really, storyline of where this thing went and what was actually seen. You can't really say that's probable. It might be possible that it kind of all kind of flew together. Maybe, but it is not probable at all. So the unlikely nature of these guys, these writers, actually works in favor of the upside-down revolution. Second thing we need to think about is, is what about the uncoordinated nature of it? Again, not about their physical prowess, but in terms of, you know, the, the possibility that they got together and figured this all out. See, one of the things that uh, you'll hear maybe even your friends say, particularly those who have not read any of the Gospels, okay, you'll say, uh, well, what about all the apparent contradictions in the Gospel? And, you know, what they often mean is you can put contradictions in quotes, because if there's an explanation for something, uh, it doesn't, you know, a, a difference doesn't mean a contradiction. A contradiction is I said one thing and then I say the exact opposite and they both can't be true. But that, most people look at the Gospels and they see differences between the writers and they say, well, they're contradicting themselves. There's contradictions in there, okay? First question to ask, by the way, when you hear that is, have you read them? And if not, well, why don't you go read them and then we'll talk about that. 
But, but let me just give you an example of, of something that's not a contradiction, but it's an oddity. It's one of the things you go, whoa, how am I supposed to get anything out of that? And it has to do with how, P, how Matthew starts his gospel. Remember last week we talked about how there was 400 years of silence from God. And then the first book in our New Testament that we read is Matthew, right after the white page that represents the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are the first words out of Matthew's mouth, out of God's mouth, so to speak. Here they are. See if it changes your life. Matthew 1.1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, you can say, well, yeah, 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 you know, this is... Um, something that uh, people really valued genealogy in those days. That was a huge, 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 huge deal. But how, how does that translate into 2018? How does that translate into 950? And all that, you know, how does that translate to all these last 2,000 years to people? And here's the other crazy thing about, and, and these are the differences in the Gospels. The crazy thing about um, Matthew's genealogy is that it's different than the genealogy that Luke reports it goes a different route through the genealogy in, in chapter 3, but there are different names in it. Or Matthew does something that nobody else would dare to do in his world, in his day. He includes four women in his genealogy. <gasps> yeah? I mean, I know it sounds terrible today. We're going, yay, but in those days it's like, you know, there's a much more sexist culture. You know, if you want to undermine your story, just, you know, like you saw in the video, just Throw, throw people in there that, you know, you're not supposed to be hearing from. And that would have been women, unfortunately. But here's the crazy thing. Matthew doesn't just pick four women. Three of those women are women who have participated in stories in the Old Testament of ill repute. Right? And then you have Matthew, how he kind of interprets this. Because he actually interprets it for you in verse 17 of chapter 1. After he's gone, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. So he says, so you have three sections of the genealogy. And you look at that, you go, wait a minute, you're leaving out whole, you know, hundreds of years of people in between some of these. This, these aren't all of them. But Matthew goes to this point, he says, you have 14 generations in the first section, 14 in the second, and 14 in the third. So you have three 14s. And all of us are going, what? That, that just seems so odd. That seems so, you know, almost contradictory. It seems so, you, you made a mistake, Matthew. But, you know, when you look at it here, just so I don't want anybody going out of here and say, you can't believe Matthew. Here's the thing. If you look at it, you, you realize that what he's trying to do is he's trying to prove that David is the king that, that, Matt, that Jesus is, is, is in the line of. The Messiah was supposed to come from David's line. And if you look at the name David in the Hebrew, all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, they, they represent numbers, okay? And David has three consonants, DVD, we'll just say that. And if you, if you take the, the Hebrew rendering of the, the number for D and V and then D again, and you add them all up, guess what number you get? 14. So it's like Matthew saying 14, 14, 14, 14. But again, that causes all kinds of problems for those of us in the 20th century when we're trying to share with our friends at Starbucks how great these Gospels are, Right? Why would he do that? It just, it seems so, you know, uncoordinated for our purposes today, let alone uncoordinated between them, because they, 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 uh, they obviously couldn't have gotten a room and figured this out and gotten their story straight, because there's too many differences in how they report it. One of them will report there were two blind guys healed, and another one will report there's one blind guy healed at the same event. 
That's the same situation. Which raises the question, what about these four different accounts, you know, stemming from four different possibilities? They come from, you know, basically people have kind of articulated this, that that there's four different possibilities of how we got these Gospels. The first one is collective fabrication. That they all got in a room, that they all figured it out, everybody except John, because John wrote, you know, like I said, a long time later. So they got in a room, and they figured out their story, and they collectively fabricated it. But the problem with that is that doesn't really explain the differences, because they'd come out with a, you know, a rubber stamp explanation. Second possibility is collective confusion. <laughs> I've been in some board meetings, not here, that are collective confusion, Everybody's talking at the same time, and we come out of there. Wasn't that great? The Lord really moved today. Nobody says that. Why? Because it was just confusion. Third one is individual fabrication. Okay, they just sat and made it up there. But what about the sameness then? How do you factor that in? Because it's the same storyline, and it gets the same space. Jesus is alive and resurrected for all of them. And the fourth one is individual confusion. They just all sat, but that, that is the most random thing in the world, right? Like John and Matthew and Mark and Luke, they're all sitting in separate parts of the world coming up, bing, they all come up with the same story, but they're all confused about it. Makes no sense at all. What makes far, far, far more sense is that the uncoordination, the differences Call them contradictions if you want to, but remember, a contradiction is one direct thing opposed to another direct thing. Okay, but the differences actually work in favor of reality. Because why? Because that's how we live, right? That's our lives. I mean, I, I, um, you know, think about it again, this accident that happens on 142nd Sunnyside. Now, when you drive out there, be careful, because I don't want this to be true, but Everybody's standing on four corners. You're going to get somebody that sees it from one angle, somebody sees it from another angle, and that's the reality. And it changes your perception to hear the other. You know, the, the police officer doesn't come in at the beginning and say, oh, I wonder if I can explain this without asking all these people. No, he sees it from all these perspectives. I, I, I had this um, <clears throat> experience this week. Uh, speaking of police officers, uh, I uh, experienced sometime in the last week, I'm not sure when, but I have been burgled on the outside of my house. I have been burgled for the third time in six months. And it was, yeah. I was starting to feel like a crud magnet. I mean, it's like every criminal in southeast Portland has my address or something. Go to this guy's house. He doesn't tie his stuff down. He doesn't lock it up. And there are no security cameras. And by the way, don't put that out. Just keep that our secret. I don't have that. But then um, about two days after I discovered this, Somebody came back to, to uh, do some work on the unoccupied house next to us because they're going to rent it again. And uh, a police officer was called over the house because this guy noticed that some weird stuff was happening out in this broken down shed out of the back of the house. And that somebody had been driving back there and there was stuff in there that didn't belong there, like a, a kid's fishing license and so forth. So this police officer came over and said, hey, we, we, I heard you, you've been having some bur- burglaries. And I said, yeah, three in six months. He goes, oh, that stinks, you know. He said, but I think we might have come up with why that's happening. I said, so you don't think it's a random, three different people, a random thing. It's one person. Yeah, because it's happening up and down your street. I said, oh, maybe I'm not such a crud magnet. You see, the perspective changes everything. And then between services, I talked to my neighbors two doors down, and they're getting stolen from too. I mean, it's just, I'm not excited about that. But the thing is, 
it changes your perspective when you have a different when you have someone looking at it from a different angle. And I think that's exactly what's happening with these gospels. So next time your friends say, you know what? I would like to believe what you believe, but I just can't because there's just so many mm, contradictions in the gospels. Next thing you can say is, isn't it great? Because it really it's real. It's reality. We all see, you know, things from different lights. And, and, and the Holy Spirit didn't shut off the personalities of these people writing it. it but what we really have is actually a better uh, indication that it's true uh, because of these four things. We have a different emphasis in these Gospels. Some of them are writing to the Greeks. Some of them are writing to Hebrews. It's from Jewish people. Some of them are writing to, to Romans and Gentiles and so forth. Varying details, depending on you know, how the flow of the story is, but there's general agreement on the flow of the story. The theme is the same. It winds up in the same place. And then there are these apparent, quote, contradictions, or you could call them differences, all of which add up to the reality. Now, is it possible that somehow they fabricated all this and it's same and different all at the same time? Is that possible? Maybe but it's not probable at all. The uncoordinated nature of these Gospels actually points toward the reality that they actually happened. This is actually what they saw. But finally, I want to show you one more thing because you're going to read about this in this Love This Book if you're doing that. Uh, you're going to read about the first uh, chapter and the first, uh, of Mark and the first thing that Jesus says when he shows up on the scene. And this has to do with the unprepared nature of these people. It's like, you know, you know how God kind of hits you with this out-of-the-blue thing? I mean, it's like when, when, when you, we, we talked about that a little while ago. It's like he just shows up when you're not expecting it. That's kind of how you experience the Gospels. That's how these Gospel writers are portraying it. it, was, it people were not prepared for an upside-down kingdom. They were prepared for a kingdom, just not one like this. In fact, the first thing that Jesus says, <clears throat> according to Mark, as he's in Galilee, is this. Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The question is, is why is this kingdom of God stuff so important that he's got to put it right up front? In fact, where did Jesus get it? Where did Mark and his buddies and the people of that day get this idea of the kingdom of God? And the answer is something you read last week if you're reading and love this book. And I just want to go through a large piece of scripture here. I'm going to read it out of, out of the Bible instead of off the screen. Just so you, we can kind of get the sense of where these people were coming from and why, and why this revolution was so un, unexpected. I'm going to begin reading uh, in, in Daniel chapter 2, but you need to know the background of Daniel. Okay, Daniel was one of the, the last prophets not the last, but one of the last prophets. And uh, he, right after Jerusalem was conquered, he was taken off to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar and his army. And he was living there, but he was recognized as being somebody that was something special. He and his, his friends, uh, three other friends, they were, you know, they were really something else, okay? And, and they were recognized by the Babylonians as this, so they were treated nicer, but they were still servants and so forth. But Daniel was ex especially faithful to God, Yahweh God. And he, in fact, later in the story, not at this point in chapter 2, but later on, remember, he's the one that prays not in his back room, not hiding under his couch. He prays right out at his window after the king assigned an edict saying, you will pray to no one else but me as God. So what does Daniel do? He goes right to his window, prays, boom. And then what happens? He gets thrown in the lion's den. You know how that turns out. 
So Daniel is that kind of guy, and, and uh, he's just kind of getting to be known as that in chapter 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and in those days, dreams portend what's going to happen in reality, what's going to happen to your rule, what's going to happen to your country and your kingdom and yourself. So he wants to know what this dream means. So he goes to his wise guys, uh, and the wise guys can't explain the dream. They can't even tell him what it is. He says, tell me what my dream is if you're so smart. None of them can do it, so he does what any king would do. He kills them all, okay? And then somebody says, hey, you know, you just killed off all your wise guys. There's another guy named Daniel. He's a Hebrew guy. He, he's known to be interpreter of dreams because he follows this God named Yahweh. So he says, bring him in. So he brings him in and, and says, interpret my dream and tell me what the dream is. And what the dream is, is that there's this statue, Nebuchadnezzar dreams. The head is gold, the chest is silver, so it's a little bit, you know, softer metal. The, the torso is bronze, which is even softer yet. But then come these iron legs that just uh, smash the rest, and there, there's, there's feet of clay mixed with iron. So if you've ever heard the phrase feet of clay, guess what? It comes from the Bible, chapter 2 of Daniel. Here's what Daniel says about the dream. This, verse 36, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it for the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings, not capitalized, the biggest king, the biggest honcho on the planet that we know of. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all of mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So he's, you're the top right now. But after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. In other words, it won't last as long, but it's going to conquer you, basically. Next, a third kingdom, one that is bronze, will rule over the whole world. So it's a little bit weaker metal, last a little bit less. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, breaks, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, it will crush and break all the others. Now, if you've ever heard about this before, hopefully you read it if you were in love this book this week, and you go, what was all this about? And maybe you've seen like an end times chart with this statue on it kind of thing. However you've heard this interpreted, let me just tell you how history played out for the next 500 years. Babylon, in a very short period of time, decades, just a few decades, Babylon is conquered by Persia. And Persia is a little weaker country than Babylon was, so it's conquered by the Greeks coming east, which is Alexander the Great, who we talked about last week. But then in about 160, 180, it kinda, they just kind of sweep across. The Roman Empire comes on the scene and blasts everybody out, okay? And that's exactly what the dream that Daniel interpreted said. But there's something else Daniel says. Look at this. Beginning at verse 44. In the time of those kings, and that's interesting too, right? Because it's like God is working during these kings. Everybody else is going like, oh, these kingdoms are, you know, who's going to be next? Uh, and meanwhile, God's working behind the scenes, as you're going to see in a minute. It's kind of like what Paul says in Galatians 4.4 that we looked at last week. At just the right time, when everything was set, when God had it ready, okay, now. That's kind of what he's saying here. He, only he's saying it before it happens. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven, that is Yahweh God, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush those kingdoms, and they bring them to an end, but it will, 
endure, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron and bronze and clay and the silver and the gold to pieces. That's interesting, isn't it? You say, well, that's interesting, Dwayne, but what difference does that make for our story about you know, the Gospels and what difference does that make to my life and so forth? First of all, this is what these people were waiting for. That's why they were so unprepared. They knew this promise. They knew the history. That's what they were looking at. You and I maybe don't know that, but they could see that God had been moving in this history because he had already prophesied that it was going to happen. And so they're looking at this, and they're saying, okay, here's the kingdom. Here it is. It's going to smash all the other ones. And yet from our perspective in 2018, we look back and we go, wait, we got 2,000 years of this revolution of this kingdom of God getting bigger and bigger and bigger and dominating the planet, and there's no sign that it's going to go away anytime soon, right? So we've got the advantage there, but the reality is, is these people were unprepared. This is unexpected thing. This is an upside-down kingdom because a right-side-up kingdom, at least from a human perspective, would be one who smashes the others just like everyone else, but just so powerful and so you know, uh, 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 oppressive that it keeps everybody else down. But God's kingdom is not oppressive at all. It's freeing, and yet it still has a more powerful force than anything else that we've ever seen on the planet. You see, it's God working behind the scenes, kind of like we said. You don't expect him. Have you noticed that God shows up when you least expect him? For example, I went to Costco two days in a row this week. That's not where you find God, but it's not a bad place to go. Because I, well, I was, both days, I met three and then four people who are Christians from our church one that I've known for 25 years, who used to be a pastor in our community, now he works at Costco, that's what we do when we're done being a pastor. <laughs> Great guy, love this guy. But I'm meeting one person, and some of the people that go, I apologize, I didn't know who you were, okay? I didn't know your name. You just called me pastor, I'm going, huh? And we just, I mean, if Jesus, what Jesus said about two or three gathered together, it was almost like being church. And maybe we were, and then the second day it happened again, and as I was walking out the second day, I didn't hear voices. Don't worry about that. I didn't hear it. But a thought came to my head that said this, that was me. And it was as if God was saying, I just want you to know that I'm working even in the mundanities all around you all the time. The, the church isn't just something that's locked in that building inside those walls. You're still doing it, and I'm still with you when you walk out the doors. But it was a surprise I didn't expect it to happen. So there's two things that you got to ask yourself about this whole business of the kingdom of God that had been prophesied hundreds of years before. Number one, is it possible? Is it possible that all those pieces and all those countries could just lock in and come together just like God said it would, by accident? I suppose it's possible, maybe, but it is not probable at all. And the second thing is, is that out of the blue nature of it, after 400 years of silence, after all of that, the out of the blue nature of Jesus coming on the scene, King Jesus, who seems to show up in our lives just out of the blue, 
and is a surprise, and we're not prepared for it at all. That's why we have such a sort of upside-down sense of his revolution, because we go, oh, we thought you meant this, and you meant that, right? That seems, is, is that possible? I suppose, but it's not probable of all, this sort of out-of-the-blue nature of it. It always seems to point to God himself, because it's beyond our abilities. We weren't even thinking about it. We weren't even looking for it. Most of us who became Christians, we weren't looking for him when we became Christians, right? He just came in, and there he was. It reminds me of early, early, early on in the beginning of this church. We, uh, we had a good time in the first year and a half, but we only had like 70, 75 people. It was a, it was a bit of a struggle in this, the least church place, that's what they call it, in America at the time. And, and you know, we were having a good time, but about a year after that, Things were just exploding. People were coming to Christ. It just, it just started happening. We, we, uh, we went 100% growth in a year and a half. It was amazing. One, one month we had 100% growth in one month. It was 75 to 150. And, and, and uh, my prayer mentor at the time, a woman who's prayed me through a lot of stuff, she's still praying for a couple of our kids. Her name's Elizabeth Larson. She, at the time, was the, president's wife, the president of our denomination, her, his wife, and she is an amazing, amazing prayer warrior. And she asked me, she said, hey, Dwayne, how's it going planting that church? I know it's tough, especially up there in the Pacific Northwest. And I said, Elizabeth, it's amazing, but it's scary. I mean, we are growing like crazy. People are coming to Christ. But here's the scary part. We're not doing anything different. It just kind of happened. I don't know why. And she said to me, yeah, but isn't that the best way? Because you know it's not something you fiddled with, it was God. And that's exactly what you find when you read these Gospels. You go, I wouldn't have written it that, I wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't have done it. Then who else would have done it? Because the reality that it happened seems to grow and grow and grow as you get into the story. So somebody, who, who's behind this? You see, that... Is whether it seems unlikely, whether it seems uncoordinated, whether it seems uh, we're unprepared for it, it all points in the direction of the reality because that's what life is like. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And God shows up at the times you least expect it, even in Costco. All right? You see, now we're coming to the point of what this all is about. We as Christians have a faith, but we don't have faith in faith. We have faith in events that drive us to faith in a person. That's what we have. And we have four accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, who from all different perspectives and all different looking, have the same teaching, the same storyline, the same reality, the same thing that happened. And they're all disconnected, except there's this eyewitness thing, that that's what we saw. And what they're trying to do, again, is not win an argument, not just to write history, but to do what the kingdom of God, this upside-down revolution, this upside-down kingdom, has beautifully been doing for 2,000 years, to go for the heart. In fact, we kind of left John out of this whole thing. So let's give John the last word. In the second to last chapter of John's story, the gospel, he says this about why he wrote his book. He just flat out tells us. 
Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Not just mental assent, but by believing, you'll just you'll give, him your, and give him your life and he gives you life. That life will be different than it ever you ever thought it could be unexpectedly, right? In other words, there's this sense that, you know, you'll have eyes to see. There it is again. You'll finally get it. So what we have in this beautiful upside-down revolution is this. A more compassionate revolution where the fighting isn't in physical space, where even his enemies can find peace, that lasts longer, that is more deeply life-changing to people, more broadly transformative to societies and to the world than the world has ever seen before or since in any other revolution that goes right down to the personal nature of revolutionizing my life and your life and anyone that follows him. So I I hope you can begin to see now that what these guys were saying, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke were basically saying is this. We know that all of us go through periods of time where the whole story just seems so upside down that it's implausible. You just, I don't know. Even Christians do that, right? Let's be honest. But if it actually happened to us, it can actually happen for you. That's why this is in our Bible. If Jesus Christ can actually die for our sin, but not leave it at that, raise again from the death so we can have new life together, well, then that God can do pretty much anything. He can raise any life. Which brings us to the reality of, finally, to two people that might be in this room. If you don't believe in him, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower here, I'm so glad you're here because you get to check out the claims of what the Bible actually says about all that. But I'd ask you that question. Have you read the gospel before you deny it and can't believe it? And even if you have, I would just suggest you do one thing. I would suggest you take the book of John. Because of the four, John is the most like profound and like, whoa, blow your mind, you know, cosmic kind of thing. And yet, earthy and down to earth all at the same time. It's amazing. Just check it out. But read the book of John. But before you do, even if you don't believe in God, and even if you're not a praying person, just say, God, if you're out there, would you surprise me and show me that this is true and what it means for my life. And just, then just read it and see what happens. But i got to say, that's not the most difficult nut that uh, God's got to crack when it comes to his word and the gospel, is it? In fact, there might be somebody in this room that's in this situation. I would almost bet on it. And that is a person who has been a Christian for a long time. At least, you know, you, you believed in the beginning and it was exciting, but through the distractions of life, the busyness of life, and probably even some pain, maybe some extreme pain of life, you've just kind of fallen off of that. And you're just kind of going on, yeah, you're still in church because here you are. But you kind of wonder from time to time, is it ever possible to believe like that again? Is it ever possible to be on, fired up for the good news of Jesus like that again? Is it possible for him to revolutionize my, me because it seemed like I was and then I wasn't? And then I, is that possible? What this is saying to you is... is What these guys are saying to you is if it actually happened for us, even after Saturday night when we thought he was, nobody believed he was the son of God, if that happened for us, 
you see it. It can happen for you. So I'd say the same thing to you. Read through one of the Gospels. Start with the book of John. You can take a break from love this book. It's okay. And read through it and just say, God, would you just enliven my heart again? Would you energize my faith again? And just see what God does this summer. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to have stories, and I want to hear them all, of what God will do in people's lives when we approach his story, his good news, that's not just a story. It's good news of an event that actually happened that can actually happen for us. I'm going to call the band out here. And as they come out, I'm just going to say one more thing just to sort of tag this on at the end. You know, have you noticed that Jesus never said, I'm going to give you my message, and you're going to understand it from the get-go, and you're not going to think there's any controversy in it at all. You got it. It's going to be easy. He never says that, does it? In fact, he says the opposite. He says, sometimes it's going to be hard. I remember something that Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, said one time. He says, you know what? Every relationship that goes anywhere and is worth anything has some controversy in it. Because, you know, that's what God uses to work it out. It's like that couple that came to me years ago and wanted me to do their wedding and came to the end of one of our pre-counseling, our premarital counseling sessions and said, you guys have had a fight, right? You kind of worked it out and figured out how to have, have a fair fight. And they said, no. They looked at me like I was Satan. Uh, we don't fight. We love each other. I said, okay, done deal. We're not meeting for two more weeks. In that two weeks, I want you to think of something you don't agree on. I want you to have a really good fight and then figure out how to get out of it. And they came the next time laughing. I said, you had a fight, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I said, was making up fun. Oh, yeah. Right? But the reality is, is that, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise. It's not a downer. It's not a problem that we have some struggle with the upside-downness of Jesus' kingdom and his revolution in our lives. Every relationship that's worth anything has some misunderstanding. And so let's not throw it all out. Let's, let's say, that's the way reality is. So God, if that's you, I need to, let's go all the way, all of us, as we read through these Gospels in these days, okay? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that what's happening here right now is because of your presence, and I thank you that it doesn't stop when we walk out these doors. And I pray that you would use your good news of joy to just transform and do something in this church, in this season, in our time. I mean, because things are great. And I love this church, and we love this church. That's why we're here. But we know that you could, we just want to offer ourselves up to do so much more in terms of transforming our lives and energizing your gospel in this community, in this town, and in this city. And we want to look back on these days as the days that, boy, we really saw God turn it on then. May these be the days when the set time has come. Thank you, Jesus, for being here. And Lord, we thank you also. We don't want to be remiss and thank you for our country where we have freedom to worship like this, where we have freedom to speak your truth and speak it out loud. And We know what a rare privilege that is. And so, Lord, we thank you for our country. And may we celebrate it this week. And as we go along the way, just remind us by your spirit to not just party and pat ourselves on the back for what a great country we have and living in it, but to thank you for it and make us courageous to stand for your truth in the midst of this place, for the betterment of us all, and for the love of people and of country. We give you this thanks, Jesus, and that's why in your name we pray all of this. Amen.